The first two weeks of Matthew, we've been introduced, and Wes did a great job last week of making us understand the hermeneutic, the interpretive method by which we understand what Matthew is trying to communicate. But we know it's a uniquely Hebraic retelling of the story of Israel, right? We have Jesus Christ who is recapitulating or reliving rightly all that Israel did wrongly. So Jesus does this successfully, therefore we acknowledge him as the true Israel of God. Again, Matthew's working hard to communicate this uh, in subtle, subtextual allusion and reference to all the Old Testament, which again is a shadow and type of Jesus Christ, the true Israel. Uh, I think in a sense that Matthew's implying as explicitly as he possibly can. He's doing this in a way, again, that a Hebrew would immediately understand, pick up on, and consider. But we being thousands of years removed from the context of Matthew's contemporaries, we, we have to work a little harder to recapture all that's being communicated, and we're doing that to the best of our ability with God's help. So all that's lingering beneath the surface of the text itself, with all the richness and depth of meaning that it has for us today, as it had for the original readers, the Hebrew audience that Matthew was writing primarily for from that perspective. So today, we'll be discovering more of the depth and richness and nuance that Matthew is communicating to us. And as Wes has said the last several weeks, Matthew, the way, rather, Matthew is communicating, right, is communicating something, is communicating something. The medium is the meaning. And Matthew's going to show us all the ways, again, in which Jesus is Israel, in which Jesus is Israel by the subtextual identification. And at the same time, as he's doing this, he's telling us that the king has come. Amen? The king has come. So the true Israel of God recapitulating all that Israel did in the Old Testament, and at the same time saying, the king is here, Matthew 2. So Matthew's saying, as Psalm 2 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Why? Lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled like we considered today. He will tread the winepress of the wrath of the fury of God Almighty. So kiss the sun lest you perish in that way. So Jesus Christ is king. He's our king, amen? But more than that, he's everyone's king. He's everyone's king. He makes demands of his subjects. He commands of us obedience. And we better kiss the sun, give obedience and submission to him, or else we will perish in the way. So as Matthew is telling the birth story of Christ, the birth story of the Messiah, which is a, a familiar story indeed, we, we tend to become very sentimental. And rightfully so, especially mothers, females, draw on their own experience of bringing their own children into the world, become introspective, contemplative, and again, rightfully so, 
And we tend to remember verses about how Mary treasured up all these things in her heart and she pondered them, what that means. And as lovely as those considerations are, Matthew doesn't spend any time on them. He jumps right into the action and activity in chapter 2. Matthew is telling us the true Israel is entering the political sphere, making claims and taking names of those who do not submit to his kingship. So here, the birth story of Christ, we have the greatest political subversion in history that was initiated on the night Jesus was born. And we'll understand that more as we go along. We've often heard that Jesus is King and Lord. King and Lord. And we see others assent heartily when they're asked the question, but oftentimes we tend to see the same people who nod vigorously at this statement become very uncomfortable when we start to apply this truth. We've heard for generations that Jesus is the King of my heart, right? We even sing songs about it. We tend to think that Jesus is the king of all those spiritual places that lay undisturbed by the perturbations of the external world, right? Oftentimes we run into Christians that believe that Christianity is not political at all, or apolitical Christians. Oftentimes take the phrase, the kingdom of God, and they mentally translate it and categorize this as some spiritual kingdom. They say, see... Look at Romans 13 and 1 Peter. Submit to the ruling authorities. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world, so just check out and hang out in the spiritual place where Jesus is allowed to be king. But today, to submit to you that Christians cannot, by necessity, be apolitical. Paul's and Peter's telling us to submit to the ruling authorities alone instructs that is necessarily a political experience. So there's a tension. What do we do with this tension? If Jesus is only king of some cordon off spiritual place, of those who accept him as king, accept him, how do we get to say that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords? Well, Jesus is the king of kings. We say this all the time when making a point in conversation. But often, we do not stop to consider what this actually means. Hopefully most of us here do, but for the sake of argument, Jesus is the king of all, yes. He's the king over all, yes. And he will subdue all rival regents, ultimately. What this means is all the kings of the earth, every single one of them, are subject to the king who reigns and rules over them presently, right now. They're viceroys, right? Proxy kings, little k kings, under the authority of the superseding king, Jesus. So Jesus is not just king in some vague spiritual place that has no bearing on day-to-day reality in the political sphere. He's king now, here, presently, overall. And it's not, it is not only those who have ascended to the rule of Jesus as the king of their heart in some spiritual realm that's hard to identify, admittedly, that are obligated to obey him. All those who draw breath are obligated to obey him. Jesus is king of all. 
believers and unbelievers, righteous rulers and unrighteous rulers. So if the ones who are obligated to obey him are the ones that already obey him, then we do not get to call people to repentance for the wrath they deserve for disobeying him. Because he's not the king of their heart's spiritual nation state. And this takes us right back to our consideration of the law, as was said this morning as well. The king of kings has made commands and prohibitions. The king of kings has made commands and prohibitions. And just... Just because governments legislate the taking of people's hard-earned, righteously acquired income to the tune of upwards of 60 to 70 percent to fund irreversible mutilation of so-called transgender teenagers, it doesn't make it any less theft. Thou shalt not steal. Or it doesn't make it any less an abomination according to the law of God, the king of kings. So stealing is stealing even when the government does it. Even if Jesus is not the king of their spiritual heart country, they are still guilty of theft according to the king of kings. And just because some state governments decide that they're okay with murdering babies in the womb, this heinous legislation does not replace or supersede the transcendent law of God, the king of kings. All authority in heaven and earth has already been given to the Lord of lords, and he's spoken definitively on these matters. So, I see a lot of faces in here. A lot of faces who will match this description. When the state told you not to gather with the saints in worship to our God, many of you said, nah, and obeyed God rather than man, didn't you? Because we live in an inescapable political reality. And today as we consider the second chapter of Matthew, Matthew is making a political statement at the same time, he's proving Jesus to be the true Israel of God. And where Israel failed to subdue and subject the godless nations, and instead they assimilated with and acquiesced to them, Jesus, the true Israel, does not fail and will not fail to subdue and subject, as we heard in Revelation. So whether you believe that Jesus' kingdom is spiritual or not, he still makes demands of you. And when these demands contradict the demands of the kings of the earth or the governments we reside under, do those governments leave you alone in your own spiritual kingdom? No. Do they recognize the spiritual bubble you have created for yourself and allow you to operate undisturbed and unmolested? No. Or do things get real political real quick? As they do in Matthew chapter 2, let's read it together. I'll give a couple seconds to get there. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, 
For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So here, the scene we have is magi, wise men, coming from the east looking for the king of the Jews. What's going on here? Why do we have people coming from the east out of another country looking for the king of the Jews? Why are not the scribes and the Pharisees who are gathered around Herod doing the same thing, right? What's going on here? Why are these men coming here because of a star? Now, there's a lot being communicated to us that I won't have time to get into, but I do want to take a minute before we get into the meat of Matthew showing us how Jesus recapitulates Israel's story uh, of the Magi. Give a little backstory. These Magi are coming from the east to Jerusalem. They're coming from the region of Babylon, the place where Nebuchadnezzar held in captivity those exiled from Jerusalem some 500 plus years earlier, right? We all know the story of the Babylonian captivity. And one of these exiles we know very well by the name of Daniel, right? Daniel. Daniel was a man who devotedly followed the law of his God in a land where he and his other faithful friends were punished for not following the political decisions made by the unrighteous government that they resided under. But while Daniel was in Babylon, he sought the good and the prosperity of the city in which he resided in exile, didn't he? As per Jeremiah 29. He seeks the good of the city and their welfare, not by blindly submitting, submitting to every political decision that is made, right? But by following the law of God, regardless of what the king under the king of kings is doing. And we know the story. Because of his faithfulness to God and God's law, what happened to Daniel? He was thrown in the lion's den, but generally he prospered, didn't he? Every time they went after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were untouched, had a realization, this guy's the true God. Forget, throw Daniel in the lion's den, he's untouched, had a realization, their God's the true God. And because of those, that faithful obedience in Babylon, he was elevated, wasn't he? He was made ruler. He was made ruler, or we can assume he applied the law of Yahweh in his political dealings daily. He was willing to die in a lion's den prior to and during. Why would we assume otherwise? At, as he was elevated, he was made a wise man of counsel, a magi, and put in a position of prominence to rule over the province of Babylon as the chief administrator over the wise men of Babylon. 
I want to reiterate this point before we move on, but Daniel was not influential because he capitulated to the Babylonian laws because it was easier than being thrown to the lions, was he? He was obedient to the law of God no matter what the consequences. And the consequences, in Daniel's case generally, were such that his faithfulness subverted and supplanted unjust legislation in Babylon. As an administrator over the Magi, because of Daniel's faithful influence in exile, and because of him teaching of a sign that would someday indicate the birth of the location of the Messiah, the king of the Jews, you have the Magi from the east, generations later, who learned from their ancestors, who learned from Daniel, to watch the skies because the Messiah was coming, right? So here come these Gentile Babylonian Magi out of the east, Herod, saying, we saw the star, where is he? Where is he? We saw the star, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? Now they asked this to Herod, right? They asked Herod, where is the king of the Jews that was born and indicated by this star? Well, there, there's a little problem with that for Herod because Herod thinks he's the king of the Jews, doesn't he? Herod thinks he's the king of the Jews. So here come the Magi from the east, and they backhand slap Herod in the face with their question. We know you fancy yourself the king of the Jews, but do you mind telling us where the real king of the Jews is located? We see the star. Can you point him out to us? How do we get there? So Herod knows, this political ruler, that he and Jesus cannot both be king of the Jews, right? One is, and one isn't. So obviously this enrages Herod, makes him very, very paranoid. See, Jesus' birth is a political act, immediately. It's God challenging the rulers of the earth. He's exhorting them again with Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son, lest ye perish in the way. But we know, and we'll learn next week more fully, that Herod did not heed this advice, right? Instead, he sought to kill his political rival to the throne. He sought to kill the king of the Jews, the Messiah, that the wise men who heard from Daniel were after to worship. Here's where it gets really interesting. Because this political power play that Matthew underscores is meant to call to our mind another time in history that parallels this same event. And remember, Matthew is showing us Jesus as the true Israel of God, how his life parallels the life of Israel in the entire Old Testament so we're taking another step on that journey in this gospel. And as Matthew gets into chapter 2, he's retelling the story of the Exodus. He's retelling the story of the Exodus in Jesus, the true Israel of God. So in conveying the typology, Matthew sets the scene. The scene has Herod being joined by the chief priests and scribes, gathered round, giving counsel, giving advice. In the new Exodus, we'll call it. 
In the old Exodus in Pharaoh, Pharaoh is accompanied by his counselors, his magicians, to give him counsel and advice. Because of the arrival of Jesus, the king of the Jews, Herod slaughters innocent Hebrew baby boys, which we'll learn more fully about next week. That recalls to mind something that happened in Egypt, right? Pharaoh slaughters innocent Hebrew baby boys. Moses, the deliverer, must leave Egypt for his safety to return at a later time, doesn't he? Jesus, the deliverer, the greater Moses, must leave Israel to return at a later time. But, but, in Matthew's retelling of the Exodus and Jesus, the contextual script is flipped, so follow close. Or, in another way, the locations have been reversed. The contextual script is flipped, or the locations have been reversed. In the new Exodus, Jesus must leave Israel, which has become a type of Egypt. Let me say that again. In the new Exodus, Jesus must leave Israel, which has become a type of Egypt. And Jesus, the deliverer, the greater Moses, we know would have to flee to Egypt so he could be called back out of, out of Egypt. I called my son, which Wes will treat next week. So I know this can be confusing, and admittedly for me it was. As I was reading through in the, the typological understanding, this hit me a little sideways, to be honest with you. And it obviously would do that, as I am not a modern Hebrew reader, right? Or the contemporary of Matthew. And I even called West and some other brothers and said, you know what, this, this contextual script flip, flipping is maybe a bridge too far for me. I don't know if I can wrap my head around this. I appreciate and love the typological richness of the Old Testament, but I'm having trouble squaring this circle, seeming circle, right? I do that a lot. Prideful, arrogant. And I was confused, somewhat, until one commenta commentator, commenter, commentator, uh, Keith, you can help me at the end. Somewhat confusing until one commenter helpfully reminded me that this is not the first time God reversed the order of things. It's not the first time he did that. In fact, the precedent was already set by the prophet Jeremiah. And the prophet Jeremiah in chapters 21 and 29 proclaims to Judah, Israel, that they are about to suffer pestilence, sword, famine, etc. They will be made like vile figs, rotten. That's what the prophet Jeremiah says to Israel. So he's painting a picture of the woes that befell Egypt, but only there to come upon the city of David. Jeremiah tells the people to get out of Judah, to exit. He proclaims an exodus. Not from a pagan land, but an exodus from the land of Israel. Israel was to become like an Egypt. Israel was to become like an Egypt. And this is not the last time we'll hear instructions to get out of Israel in Exodus either. At the closing parts of Matthew, we'll discover that as well, as Jesus gives the same instructions yet again. But I won't spoil that. I'll leave that for another message. So finally, I could see the precedent already set by God in the Old Testament. 
But as been said in earlier messages, I have, haven't always read my Old Testament with the richness of topology in mind. I've limited my scope and have lost the richness that's contained therein. So just as Yahweh had judged Egypt and told his faithful to get out, Israel had degenerated to the place where they too would have the wrath of Yahweh directed at them. Terrifying. They had become an Egypt, oppressing and abusing the faithful. Just as Egypt under Pharaoh had oppressed and abused the Israelites in Moses' time. So Jesus comes on the scene in his birth to this situation. He comes to bring the faithful out of the new Egypt that is Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and oppresses the faithful and continues to do so. And again, Matthew is showing us a recapitulation of the Exodus taking place in part here. Here again is the scene. We have the haughty, self-important Herod as the new Pharaoh. He orders the slaughter of all the baby boys in the region to protect his place of power in the new Egypt. And just as Pharaoh slaughtered all the baby boys in Egypt to keep from being overpowered himself, we see the parallel. Moses, the deliverer, was protected and escaped the sword of Pharaoh's decree. Jesus, the deliverer, the greater Moses, was protected and escaped the sword of Herod, the new Pharaoh's decree. So Jesus is the new Moses who comes to bring his people out from under the despotism and abuse of Herod and all kings and political systems like his. Jesus is bringing his people out of these corrupt systems and structures. Just as Moses brought his people out of Egypt, Jesus brings his people out of the new Egypt, and I love this, and even Babylon, right? He brings his people out of Babylon. Well, how do we get there? I'll tell you. The covenant is expanding. We remember Wes's drawing. Good drawing. The covenant is expanding and inclusive, and it will bring into it the Gentiles, right? It will bring into it the Gentiles. The gospel goes out to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and the whole world will be included in the promises of Abraham. Amen. You and I are beneficiaries of it. And here, in the birth story of Christ the King, we have a first picture, the first snapshot, the first fruits, if you will, of the Gentiles that would be incorporated into the true Israel of God, Jesus, the King of Kings. And who are they? The Babylonian Magi. Called out of the place that is biblically, Babylon, biblically associated with evil, corruption, deception, illusion, Babylon. It has all those terms underneath it, right? All we have to do as believers is say it. We know exactly what people are talking about. So here they come out of Babylon with precious gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh to worship the king of kings. And here, without explicitly being told, we have in the subtext the partial fulfillment of Isaiah 60, 4 through 9, that the nations will stream to Jerusalem and bring their wealth and riches with them. So these magi, these first fruits of the Gentiles, have come out of Babylon to worship and serve the Israel of God, the King of Kings. 
The typology Matthew is giving us is so deep and multifaceted that we literally could spend a lifetime mining all the meaning that's wrapped up within. But we don't have the time today. Coffee later. But this leaving or being brought out of Babylon or Egypt is the story of every subject of King Jesus, isn't it? We're, we're still coming out of Egypt and Babylon today, aren't we? Those of us who reside within the true Israel of God have heard the call to, quote, come out of her, Babylon, my people, and be not partakers in her sins. Jeremiah 51, 45, go out of the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Come out of her, my people. Run for your lives. Run from the fierce anger of the Lord. Revelation 18, 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Babylon. So we are coming out of Babylon. We have each had our own very exodus out of Egypt to Israel, haven't we? The king of kings, the true Israel of God, our destination. We ran for our lives to get out of it, to exit. We exited the kingdom of darkness, the Egypt and Babylon of our own times, so as not to be partakers in her sins and the plagues and the devastation that the Lord will bring. And I would humbly say, if you don't see Babylon and Egypt around you today, please look harder. Please look harder. The Egyptian obelisk in Washington, D.C. will be a good starting place. But it truly is Colossians 1.13, isn't it? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what does that mean? Well, that means we no longer blindly follow every dictate of the political rulers of the system of Egypt and Babylon, but we have made our way to the king who commands the obedience of all. Commands the obedience of all. Including those kings, presidents, governors, mayors that we reside under. All. But let us continue with Matthew's parallel to the Exodus before we leave it. And Wes picks it up next week. These Gentile magi who are coming with riches to Jesus, Jesus excuse me, show us that the Lord is beginning to fulfill His promise to form a new, renewed, inclusive Israel. Inclusive in the sense that He is grafting in Gentiles at a massive rate. Amen? And, and get this. The first Gentiles to bow their knee to King Jesus followed a star to their destination. Does that sound familiar? Israel followed a pillar of cloud and fire to their destination out of Egypt. These magi travel from the east, entering the land from the east, just as Israel did. Just as Israel did when they came out of Egypt. And again... To reiterate, these magi were the beginning of the new inclusive Israel. 
an Israel that will consist of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Tribe, tongue, and nation. The whole cosmos. But I love the ending of of our text for today, and I won't spoil anything for Wes next week. But after the Magi had bowed their knee to King Jesus from Babylon, coming out, giving riches, giving honor, what's, what's the first thing they do with regard to the kings of the earth? Specifically Herod. Well, they ignore his request, don't they? They ignore his request. Because having been warned about the true intentions of Herod, they disregard Herod because they know that Jesus was the ultimate king of the political realm, not Herod. So they subvert Herod's political plans by following and deferring to a higher authority than him. And they knew, hear this, they knew that their obeying Herod would have had ramifications in the real world. Not just in some floaty spiritual place where it didn't matter. And in considering these things, we see that Matthew is communicating so much more than what is readily apparent on the surface. Beautiful depth and richness. So we talk more about the leaders. Jesus is born into a Jerusalem where the Jewish leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, are on the side of the power-hungry, genocidal Herod, right? Gathered around. We know the rest of the story. We'll get to it in Matthew. Those that are supposed to lead the people of Israel oppose the true Israel of God. So we have to be careful. John the Baptist and Jesus himself have many repentant disciples who are certainly Jewish. Absolutely. So to lump all the Jewish people at the time into the same category would be an absolute mistake. So we must be careful not to do that. But... It is the Jewish leaders who stand in strong opposition to Jesus, isn't it? Those leaders who have a vested interest in maintaining their political position in the Roman government. These are the same leaders whose lives have been dedicated to learning and interpreting the Holy Scriptures, the same chief priests and scribes who correctly informed Herod of the exact place where the Messiah was to be born, right? They just did that. But it's interesting that with all that occurred, celestial signs, inquiries from the Magi from the East, their knowledge of the birthplace of the Messiah, that they might at a minimum have analyzed this a little more closely, wouldn't one think? But again, we know the story. Instead, the Jewish leaders for political positioning and maintenance of power opposed the King of Kings, their very own Messiah. Opposition to Jesus begins in Jerusalem, we know. And we know how the story ends in Golgotha. And we know what happens in the in-between, and we'll consider that. But the Jewish leaders see Jesus as a threat to their power, the status quo, especially as they see the numbers of his disciples growing. And the Old Testament, once again, the Old Testament has much to tell us about these corrupt leaders of Judah and especially the prophet Micah, as Matthew quotes from him in verse 6 of our text from today, he brings these things to mind for us. He brings these things to mind for us. By implication, 
as he talks about where the Messiah would come from and go forth from, we understand that in the same prophecy, it condemns the leaders of Israel. I say we understand, but obviously a Hebrew mind would understand that readily. We have to do a little more work. So the same prophet who announces the birthplace of the Messiah also rails against the corrupt leaders of Judah who, quote, hate good and love evil, devouring and destroying the people of God. And he says this in chapter 3 of Micah, the prophet. Micah is telling us that the Messiah will go forth from Bethlehem to shepherd his people. So Jesus, the good shepherd, is directly contrasted again by Herod, the, as Micah would say, devouring, destroying shepherd spoken of by him, by Micah, who would, again, slaughter innocent Jews just to maintain his political power. What's Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is subverting their abusive, self-serving authority with his actual authority in serving others. So as Micah says, Jesus will come from Bethlehem, yes. And Matthew's doing something very interesting here in verse 6. Very, very interesting. Matthew is making a point to make much of the city of Bethlehem. He's doing his best to elevate and make much of the city of Bethlehem, the town that our Savior and King is born in. But Micah, the prophet who he's quoting is doing the complete opposite. Micah, the prophet he's quoting, is doing the complete opposite. Matthew says, and we've read it already, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, land of Judah are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. Micah, here's what he says, As for you, Bethlehem, Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth from me to be the ruler in Israel. Hmm. One will go forth from Bethlehem. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. Matthew, not the least. Not the least of Israel. So we've got Matthew emphasizing Bethlehem and Micah downplaying Bethlehem. Matthew maximizes, Micah marginalizes or minimizes Bethlehem. So the question is, who's right? Who's right? And I know this frustrates some of you. Both. Both are right. So here again we have the text communicating something. The city of Bethlehem, once despised, insignificant, marginalized has become the focal point and center of the Messiah's going forth. It was despised, Micah, but now has the highest reputation, Matthew. Does this sound familiar? Does this motif sound familiar? We know it does. And we love how this truth plays into the political nature of the gospel and the character of Christ himself, the actual character of our King and Savior. Minimal and maximal. Marginalized and magnificent at the same time. This certainly explains the character of Jesus, doesn't it? 
Three examples. Jesus comes as a king born in a lonely manger, covered in the filth of the animals that reside there. The firstborn of all creation, the one who created all things, shares the same floor as animal feces. The king of all and lord of all, residing at the right hand of God, there was no room for him in an inn. Right? We have Jesus, meek and mild, who did not quench a burning flax or break a reed, but that same Jesus will return and break teeth and kneecaps. And I, I know I come to this a lot. Maybe there's something wrong with me. I appreciate the justice of our God. But He'll come back to break teeth and kneecaps and burn the flax on the threshing floor with what? Unquenchable fire. So at one time in the same relationship, we have one who would not break a reed or quench a smoldering flax, who will break kneecaps and burn with unquenchable fire. And the same one who knelt on his own knees to wash the feet of sinners, and even knelt to wash the feet, think about this, even knelt to wash the feet of the very one who betrayed him will stand with all authority in heaven and earth as every knee bows to Him in heaven and earth. So, minimal, maximal. Marginalized, mighty. That's the character of our King. So Jesus, our great Deliverer, has brought us out to the mountain of God where we learn the ways of His government righteousness. And I will leave the exodus here. We'll depart from it so Wes can have a full treatment of it next week, as enticing as it is to mine the richness. But in closing, we have some questions. What are the political implications of Jesus' birth and the gospel? Well, again, Jesus' birth is a warning shot, a shot across the bow to all corrupt rulers on the earth, isn't it? He's telling him, you better kiss the sun or you will perish in the way. It's a command to all kings to submit to the king of kings. And how does Jesus' birth change the political landscape forever in reality? In reality, and not just in the spiritual floaty place that we've come to associate his kingship with. And again, to answer, Jesus' birth is a royal announcement that the king is here. And you'd better obey him here in your day-to-day life and necessarily, without exception, in the political space that we operate in, such as the nature of our existence. So I obey King Jesus. And again, we've hit this same thing several times, so God Almighty must, uh, must have us consider this for a reason. So I obey King Jesus when the wicked governments and political systems Do not obey King Jesus. When they do not obey King Jesus, I do not obey them. I obey King Jesus. Jesus tells us that his kingdom is not of this world, and it isn't. It isn't, because it is nothing like the kingdoms of this world. Nothing like the kingdoms of this world, because he rules with complete justice, doesn't he? Complete benevolence, complete power perfect wisdom, perfect insight, perfection. 
The kingdoms of the earth cannot be compared to his kingdom and his rule. So hear this. He is a king with a kingdom. He is a king with a kingdom. And the kingdom of God is here now in part. We cannot mistake this. We reside in it. And all rulers are subject to it. And one day, Jesus will return, as we've heard about, and will reign perfectly and bodily on this very earth when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Lord, haste the day. Come, Lord Jesus. So we who obey King Jesus are freed from the power-hungry, self-serving, corrupt political systems of this world. We no longer belong. We no longer belong to the devouring shepherds. We belong to the good shepherd. We submit to earthly rulers, yes, but only because our high king, Jesus, tells us to do so. But again, the rulers of this earth are obligated to follow King Jesus as well. So when the rulers of this world make corrupt demands of us, we gather and worship anyway. We ignore Herod and go home another way. Because we obey the king of all other kings first. And he's calling the marginalized, the despised, the weak, the foolish things, right? The things that are not, the rejected, the ones on the outskirts, those that have been abused and exploited by the corrupt rulers of the earth. He's calling them, us, to become the center of his kingdom. That which was marginalized will be magnified. Amen? That which is lowly will be lofty. That which is detested will be distinguished and ineffably wonderful. There's no words to describe the reality of his ultimate rule and reign. So we obey the king of kings in the midst of corruption and evil, dictates that contradict his commands, we obey him. And again, as we started out, this is necessarily subversive and destabilizing to evil and corruption, necessarily. And in this subversive, destabilizing way, the kingdom of God will grow to encompass the entire earth. Amen. Let's pray.